Well, good evening. How are you guys doing? Good. I missed you guys. I missed being with you. We, we had a nice long break, uh, summer break. We stopped so many things in summer around here. We're a college town, but, but it's kind of nice because I, I feel like anytime we get back to it, it's like, man, I got new energy. I'm kind of revved up and ready to go. So it's, it's just fun to be together. Let's, let's go around and say what you did over summer break. Okay. <laughs> each, each one of us. Um, one of one of my highlights, I, I, I tell you guys this probably every single year, is like toward the end of the summer when when the northern Minnesota waters are warm enough, our family drives up there and we stand a little family. It's in the family little cabin, and the kids fish off the dock and they paddle boat around and they look for clams and there's a, you know just all the water stuff. And I don't have to coordinate all their activities. I can just watch them, which is a beautiful thing to do when you've got four kids trying to you know, keep them entertained. So uh, great, great summer. I loved it. But like I said, I am re-energized. I'm pumped to be back, to have a lot of different things going on. Um, let me make a couple of comments about some of those things that, that we have going on. Um, the first is, I'll get up my notes so I don't miss anything here. Um, we, when you walked in, you might have seen there's a board, uh, an equip board. Equip, if you can kind of lodge that word in your mind, that's what we call our Sunday morning, like adult classes, adult education, adult Sunday school, adult Bible study, whatever you might call it. And if, I would encourage you to grab one of these and take a look at the schedule. There's a whole list of of different classes going on. I mean, there's like a uh, single parents class. There is a um, one about how to how to actually learn to study the Bible. Like what are tips to actually learn how to read and read it for all it's worth. There's a parenting class. There's a financial peace class. There's a class, we've never done this before, uh, kind of getting familiar with Greek, the Greek language, which uh, made up the New Testament. Um, so a lot of different opportunities to really kind of grow and, and stretch your, your hearts, your minds uh, in, in your apprenticeship with Jesus. Um, and let's see, I think there was another one. Oh, I know what I can't forget. Especially the first time back. I see the shiny plates in the back. Uh, our weekly tithes and offering. Uh, we as a community believe that Jesus owns everything. And so we, we give back the first of what we receive and trust that he will meet all of our, all of our needs. So this is for Timberline family. If you're a guest, we don't ask you to give. But ushers, you can come forward and uh, you can just pass those um, around. And, and thanks just for faithfulness in, in giving in so many different ways. Uh, we're, we're starting a new series, and I want to kind of jump in fast because we got a lot of stuff to cover here. Um, for the next tonight and then the next two weeks, we're going we're gonna to start off our Wednesday Night Community series looking at the issue of Mormonism and specifically asking, at least tonight, the question, is Mormonism Christian? Um, you know, kind of the why of doing this, you know, why do you suppose we're doing this um, now? And, and it's primarily because of this reason right here. Um, we've, we've had... This has been coming for a couple of years, but, but there, there's been a, a Mormon temple built in our community. You guys have probably all driven by it and seen it down there at 2180 Majestic Court. Beautiful, beautiful building. And questions, you know, people start, hey, what's this about and what's going on? And, you know, help us to understand this. And, and so the reason we're, we're starting, we don't normally start this semester talking about this sort of thing, but we just thought it was timely. Because we want to be relevant, we want to be engaged in our culture and our community, we want to be informed. So the primary goal, let me say this, of these next three weeks, is that you and I would learn how to better understand and love our Mormon uh, neighbors and friends. That's it. Better understand and better love our Mormon neighbors and friends. And so hopefully this will do this for, for all of us here. As we go, um, when you think about the the uh, Mormon faith, let me just say a word about the temple. This is why it's kind of significant. There, there are about 150 Mormon temples in the whole world. So it's very unique that one would open here. Um, has anyone here done tour, done a tour of the temple? Oh, good, good. Yeah, I did a tour, uh, uh, I think it was th- three weeks ago tomorrow. And uh, very gracious, uh, very warm and welcoming, great 
great experience going through it. And I would encourage you, the, the tours are going through Saturday, the 10th, I think. So you can jump online and RSV, RSVP and that sort of thing. So I would encourage you to do it. And hopefully that experience will inform this conversation, and this conversation will inform that experience as well. But there, there are about 74,000 active mormon missionaries these would be the you know the young people who might come to your door nicely dressed well-mannered clean-cut young people wanting to share uh about the the other testament of jesus christ that that they want to share with you um there are about 15.6 million mormons worldwide um, and over these next couple weeks we're going to be talking a lot of little details oh i know one thing i was going to tell you uh, if, if you picked up a bulletin, did you all get one? If you didn't, go grab one, because we're going to use this heavily tonight, okay? There's a little map in there that I'm going to have you guys fill out. This is like color by number. It's going to be kind of fun. Um, but if you open the very first page on the bottom, it says, we invite your questions and comments about this teaching series. Um, I kind of toyed with the idea. I don't think I'll do it tonight, because I don't think I'll have time, but... Um, this is, this is a Google text number, so, so text it in. I'll get those questions or comments, and, and I would love to kind of uh, be able to... This, we can't really have a lot of exchange in this sort of a large group setting, but as best we can. So I don't know if we'll get to the questions tonight. Hopefully over the next two weeks I will. If, if I run out of material and we're, we're bored, I'll just get your questions tonight. So, But anyway, please use that if you do have any questions. But, but this is what I'm going to have you guys look at, and kind of we're going to spend... Here the next 40 minutes or so, just walking through this, and I'm going to have you guys fill in some things um, <clears throat> on this as we go here. Um, one of the biggest challenges I found, I've been um, having exchange with, with uh, LDS people and studying Mormonism for about a decade and a half now. And one of the biggest challenges I had early on, and I've experienced other people have, <clears throat> is that there's a language barrier. Um, meaning, it can be really challenging. Like you have a conversation, you kind of feel like you have understanding, and then the next second you don't. And it's just, it, it, it feels like pieces are moving, and it's just kind of confusing. And, and so what, what we have to do is, is what some people call scale the language barrier. Um, what, it, what I mean is this. Christians, when I say Christians, I'm talking about the, the historical Christian church of whether it be Roman Catholic, Protestant, Eastern Orthodox, okay? Historical Christianity. Historical Christianity and Mormons have the same vocabulary, but a different dictionary. Does that make sense? We use the same words, we have the same vocabulary, but different lexicons. <laughs> How we define those words, the majority of the time, very, very different. And so imagine having a conversation with someone where you're using the same coin, the same term, the same word, but you mean totally different things by it, right? How many of you were married? Yeah, it's just like that. It's exactly like that. <clears throat> you know, you can be talking back and forth and like, but that's exactly what I said. And right, and it just, it doesn't connect because the meaning, right, the dictionary definition of that word means some, two totally separate things. And that is what is really, really challenging. So what I want to do tonight is walk through the story. Um, I called this the world according to Mormonism. Where are we now? Where did we come from? Where are we going? How do we get there? Sort of the big grand sweep of history. And once you understand that, then the terminology, and, and you kind of scale the language barrier, and then you hear about all these pieces. Well, they do this. You know, I, don't, I don't understand. You can kind of plug it in. It makes a lot more sense. And so I also included in there... Um, on page, oh, these aren't page numbers. That would have been a good idea to page numbers. One, two, three, four, five. On page five, it says terminology differences. And this is a couple pages of, you know, when this group says this word, here's what they mean. When this, the other group says it, here's what they mean. Super helpful, right? This is like a decoding ring. Really, really helpful to understand this. And then at the very back, there are some resources. As you're kind of going, hey, I got more questions. Good. Hopefully more will get answered here. The ones that don't, though, there are some great resources. Um, I gave some book resources, some online resources. You also picked up, did you pick up something that says a profile? It's like a stapled, what, two-page thing, I think? Yeah. This, there's a ministry called Watchman Fellowship. Um, one of the guys who's a, who's a mentor of mine, James Walker, from many years ago, is, is the president of this Watchman Fellowship. Um, 
I would highly encourage you, go, go to this website and subscribe to their profile list. They, they've been making these profiles on religious groups, sects, leaders, movements for about like 20 years. And so I've got a folder, like I also have it digitally, which is better, but I've got a folder about this thick um, in alphabetical order, everything from, you know, astrology to Zoroastrianism. And everything in between. <laughs> so really helpful to have a concise guide to what's this all about and how can I think Christianly. So that's, that's what that is there. Hopefully that is useful for you <clears throat> um, as well. So here's what I want to do tonight. Let me, let me start out by uh, bringing up a couple of verses. Okay. Um, and actually, you know what? Before, before I do this, let me, let me go back a second here. Um, I want to I want to read a passage for you. Um, from Ephesians chapter four. OK, right. Maybe write this passage down. Uh, this is just a tad bit of groundwork and then we'll jump in. This speaks to our method of engagement with other people of other faiths or people in our own faith, whatever it might be. Listen to the method here. Ephesians chapter four. Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus, and he's talking about two things. He says, we need to have unity, and we need to have maturity. Okay, guys, this is what he's telling them. We need to be together, united, right? And we need to be mature. And so in that context, he says, then, as we're pursuing that, as we're moving toward unity and maturity, he says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. It's like the picture of a boat that has no rudders just being slapped back and forth by different ideas because it, it's not grounded. It's not rooted. It doesn't have something directing it. Um, and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful schemings. Instead, here's, here, we won't be that way if we're seeking maturity and unity and holding truth. Instead, here it is, speaking the truth in love. That's it. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So here's the key. Speaking the truth in love. Okay? Those, those are the two pieces. Um, we want to speak the truth always, and we want to do it in a, in a loving manner. You could say it this way. Speak the Christian tr truth with a Christian accent. <laughs> right? Have you ever known someone who's really good at truth? And they stink at love. How does it come across? It's harsh. It's aggressive. They might be right, but no one's going to listen, right? They might be, you know, a pastor Bob Seal always says, you can, be, you can be right or you can be right in the relationship. Which I love that. You can be right or you can be right in the relationship. So, so people who don't have the love piece, they have the truth and it's, and it's harsh. So it's not just love. He says, speak the truth in love. Now, if someone disregards truth and it's all love what's that look like ah, i'm too worried about losing the relationship so i never get around to saying anything truthful because i'm afraid of conflict and friction so it's not 50 percent love 50 percent truth it's a hundred percent love and a hundred percent truth that's our that's our model as followers of jesus okay so that's how we're going into this that's how we engage with people who we agree with or not speak the truth in love okay <clears throat> let me let me jump to this verse Jude, uh, verse 3 through 4, he writes this, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, that's the unity piece, man, I was so excited to talk about unity and who we are and all these sorts of things, I felt that I had to urge you to contend for the faith, faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. I got to talk about truth. I want to do the unity piece. I got to do this. You know why? You know why I have to do this? For certain men, certain people whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. What he's saying is truth is powerful, but it's fragile. And if someone perverts truth, it's deadly. Similarly, Acts. Uh, chapter 20, uh, Paul writes this. He says, I know that after I leave, remember Paul would go to churches and he would build them up and teach them and encourage them and he'd be there sometimes for a couple years and then he would move on, but he'd stay there for a couple years. But he says this, he goes, I know that after I leave, 
And then he uses a picture that he steals from Jesus. Remember Jesus talked about sheep, I'm sorry, wolves and sheep's clothing. Remember that? If you ever read some of the Gospels? He says, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, even from within, men will arise and distort the truth. Truth and love, which one are they going after? They're going to distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Be vigilant. Be careful. Be thoughtful. Be critical. Remember that for three years, he says, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Did Paul care a lot about truth? For three years, he said, I I, I begged. I said, be so careful with this with tears. I warned you against this. Paul's that a perfect model of that, too, because he's a follower of Jesus, of speaking the truth in love. So here's what we're going to do tonight. Let's see here. Okay, we're going to start there. Um, ever, ever gone into mall? And what do you do like when you're trying to get oriented to like you're trying to find? It's going to say the gap. That makes me sound old. Oh my gosh. Uh, arrow poster. What's cool at the mall now? I don't go to the mall anymore. I don't know. I've got four kids. I don't go to the mall. I go like the secondhand store. Um, <clears throat> wherever you're trying to go in the mall, okay, you go and you find the big board, right? And what do you look for? What's the first thing you look for? Huh? You are here. Yeah, before, okay, maybe you find the store, but then the second thing you do is you go, you are here, right? And it lets you know where you're, and then you can kind of navigate, okay, I've got to turn, you know, go this way, and that sort of thing. So, you are here, okay, in case you didn't know. Um, this, this is earth. We're going we're gonna to walk through the, the, the story, the world according to Mormonism. Do you have that page out in your, in your bulletin with that kind of map? Okay, we're going to fill that thing in. So the, the circle on the far bottom left corner is this, earth. Now, Mormons refer to this as the second estate. Okay? Now, before we talk about, so why are we in the second, of a, second estate, let's rewind a little bit. Okay, let's go back to what comes before that. Before the second estate was the, nice, the first estate, okay? What, what Mormons call the pre-existence, okay? The pre-existence is where Heavenly Father lives. He- Heavenly Father has a proper name, like my name is Brent. Heavenly Father's proper name, they would say, is Elohim, okay? That's, that's his proper name. Elohim, Heavenly Father, and Heavenly Mother live on this physical planet. They have physical bodies of flesh and bone, no blood. I'll explain why later. But they live on this planet. And what, all we know about this planet is that it, it circles a great star, a great sun called Kolob. Okay? Where it is in the universe, or in a, is it a multiverse? You know, doesn't really, Mormonism doesn't really give a definitive answer to that. But, but God the Father lives in the pre-existence, this the phys- physical planet, okay? And he has, he has a physical body. Now, his physical body, it's um, even... Well, let me say something about this, and then I'll explain why that is. Um, things didn't start there either. Things actually, everything comes from the intelligences, okay? This, uh, think of the intelligences as sort of the Home Depot of the universe, okay? Or Lowe's, if you're... That's, that's your thing. Um, this is where everything in the intelligences is eternal. You actually existed, not with a body, but your intelligence did in the pre-existence. God's intelligence existed in the pre-existence. The, the only thing that is eternal, it's not God, the only thing that is eternal is matter, stuff, and intelligences. Those are, those are the only things that are eternal, Okay. So what God does, and I'll explain, we're going to come full circle and kind of see the whole thing here. So if it's not totally making sense, stick with me, okay? What God does here in the pre-existence is he utilizes the stuff in the uh, intelligences and matter, and he reorders it. He He doesn't create, this God doesn't speak the world into existence. He can't create matter, okay? But he gets this stuff and he reorders it. To, we say create, but it's not true creation, to 
organize the world that that we know here. Okay, and so God has at least one wife or wives and. In this pre-existence, on this planet, God and his wife or wives are, are having spirit children. Okay? And I'm not talking hundreds. I'm not talking thousands. Uh, I'm, I'm talking millions and, and billions of spirit children. Okay? So, Heavenly Father, physical body. Heavenly Mother, physical body. They're, they're having spirit children, though. Now, the Heavenly Father has a physical body, but... Joseph Smith taught that it was it was a refined physicality that you couldn't even see it. It was so refined. So even even when they say a spirit body, it's still physical, but it's a refined physicality that is so refined you can't even see it with your eyes. So there's not a huge difference between physical and spiritual. But Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother are giving birth to millions and millions of spirit children. And one of those was you. You existed in the preexistence with Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother and all of your spirit brothers and sisters. Okay? Um, the first spirit child that they had was this one named what we call Jesus. They would say Jehovah. Okay? And so the first and oldest child they gave birth to is Jesus. And they gave birth to other ones. Another child they gave birth to was Lucifer. You know, who we think of as Satan. Another child they gave birth to was me and you. And, and so you and Jesus and Satan and me, and, you're all of the same nature. Does that make sense? Uh, there's no difference in uh, ontology, you know, we say. There's no ontological difference between you and Jesus and Satan. We, we were all spirit brothers and spirit sisters of the same essence, of the same nature. Now, something, something happened in uh, pre-existence. Heavenly Father had a plan for how he was going to, what he was going to do with the second estate, how he was going to people it, uh, they would say, and then how, how he was going to uh, do this thing called the law of eternal progression. We'll get that in a second. And so he was basically going to say, everyone's going to go to earth. It's risky, but the plan was presented. You're all going to go to earth, and you won't remember... But huge payoff if you do this and if you're obedient to the law of eternal progression, you can progress beyond your current state. You can kind of evolve in your nature forever. That's why it's called the law of eternal progression. You can progress in your evolutionary track unending. You know, it never stops your progression. Whew. Big payoff, big risk. But we all agreed to it. The problem is, there was one of the spirit children of Elohim named Lucifer who said, well, I think we should do it too, but I don't think we should give people free choice, you know, free agency. We should just like everyone, it's mandatory, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, he said, no, absolutely. Well, a war broke out because Lucifer's plan to do it was different than Elohim's plan. And so this, this great war breaks out. And there, as a result of it, there are kind of different groups of people. I don't, hopefully you can, is that hard to see? Yeah, okay, no kidding. Wow, that's worse than I thought. Okay, sorry about that. Um, let, let me tell you, I'll, I'll kind of read it to you and you can kind of fill it in, okay? So the top part, it just, it just says the oldest of the spirit children is Jesus and Lucifer. They battle over who's going to save. And there are three groups, okay? Group number one are the, are the ones that they side with Lucifer, okay? Well, what happens as a result of that is they become the demons. They get kicked out. So all of our spirit brothers and sisters who sided with Lucifer, they become demons. And the biggest consequence of that, you'll find out later why, is they never have a chance to have a body. Because body is necessary for this eternal progression. So they don't get that chance. So their eternal progression, it's stopped. They can't progress anymore. And so they're kicked out. Um, the second group. Let's see if I can get this here. Okay, so here's the first group over here. Sided with Lucifer. They, you know, they kind of get kicked out of the deal. Their, their progression stops. But there are two other groups. They're going to make it to earth. They're going to receive bodies. The second group are those who sided with Jesus. Okay, group number two, they, they side with Jesus' plan to do this law of eternal progression thing. The third group, um, 
there's a little bit of lack of clarity as to why they're in the third group. Um, some people would say, well, they didn't fight valiantly or they were undecided. But they didn't fight valiantly like this group. And so the consequence is when they get to earth, group number three, those who just either didn't fight valiantly or they weren't noble or something like that, the consequence is they don't get to hold something called the priesthood. And we'll talk about later why that's really important. But they don't get to hold it. Okay. Well, big question is, okay, so we're all here. I can't be like, yeah, I remember which side you were on, buddy. Uh-uh, forget it, right? We don't, we don't have memory. Uh, Mormonism doesn't really explain why we don't have memory about that. But, so how do we know who gets to hold the priesthood? Well, God, God put a mark on them. God gave them dark skin. He gave them black skin. Well, that's a great way to be able to distinguish between groups, right? Because I, you know, I can clearly see you. Right? You can't hold the priesthood. Um, you, you receive a body, but you don't get to hold the priesthood. Now, why is that important? Because on earth, yeah, you can't see those things at all. I'm going to have to read those to you. Sorry about that. On earth, there, there are like nine things in categories that you need to do. Four that are like bare minimum, you gotta, gotta, gotta do it. Okay? And those are the ones in red. So the first thing is you have to receive a body. Check. Like we're all good with that, right? We've done that. You have to experience sin. Um, and I'll just say this real quick. Uh, the Mormons have a different view of sin's bad. They don't promote sin, but the original sin, meaning Adam's sin, you know, we look at that as this grave tragedy. Right. Mormons, they don't speak of it as the fall. They say it's falling upward. It was actually a good thing. Adam obeyed God in eating of the apple in sinning because Adam was given two contradictory commands. Be fruitful and multiply with Eve. And he was told, don't eat of the apple. Well, Eve had already eaten of the apple, so he chose eating of the apple so he could procreate and have children. So, so people even, you know, Mormons would even used to, you know, they'd pray like, may I have the wisdom of Adam, you know, to know how to choose. So, so they don't speak of it as the fall like we do. It's a fall upward. It's actually a good thing. So we've received a body. We've all experienced sin. These next four are absolute musts. Number one, faith in Jesus. Remember what I said about terminology differences? I can't go into it now, but they're using the same vocabulary, different dictionary, what they mean in some respects by these things. So the first most important thing, faith in Jesus. The second thing, repentance. Fifth thing is baptism. That has to be done uh, by someone holding the Aaronic priesthood. The Aaronic priesthood was given to Joseph Smith in 1929. John the, uh, uh, John the Baptist appeared to him and gave him the, the Aaronic priesthood authority to be able to do that. Um, and then the fourth thing is you have to receive the Holy Spirit by laying on of hands. But it has to be laying on of hands by someone who holds the Melchizedek priesthood. The Melchizedek priesthood... Peter, John, uh, Peter, James, and John appeared to Joseph Smith and gave him the authority to have the Melchizedek priesthood. So that was reestablished. Uh, and next week we're going to talk a little bit more about, like, Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon and all that stuff. So have patience with that. I just want you to get the story, okay? So how are you doing? Are you tracking? Okay. We were in the preexistence. God used eternal matter and stuff to create our world. We went there. We had to, as a minimum, do four things. We had to have faith in Jesus. We had to repent. We have to receive baptism. Uh, and then we have to receive the Holy Spirit okay, in a certain way by the right kinds of people. And that's, what, that's bare minimum. There are other things like, number seven says, obey the laws of the gospel. If you've been in the church long, you might be scratching your head going, laws of the gospel? Yeah. Um, number eight, you have to become temple worthy. Um, we'll talk a little bit next week, a little more. But most Mormons cannot enter the temple. Uh, being, being temple worthy is not any. It's not like you, you know I attend church kind of thing. It's fairly stringent. So that's why a lot of the people going through the Mormon temple are Mormons because that's the only chance they'll ever have to go through it. 
So you want to become temple worthy. And then number nine, you have to perform the temple ordinances. And those are many, many things. Very (laughs) in-depth. If you want to hear a little bit about temple ordinances, a lot, kind of. um, Sandra Tanner, she's one of the resources on the back page there. YouTube, Sandra Tanner Temple. And there's like three hours, three one-hour segments of Sandra Tanner, who's a fourth-generation descendant of Brigham Young University, uh, convert to Christianity, uh, considered one of the leading scholars on Mormonism in the world. And she talks all about the temple garments, great detail, if you're, if you're interested in that. We'll talk about some of that in a second. So, minimum, you want to have faith in Jesus, repent, baptize, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's bare minimum to keep going in this process. Now, at death, we're all going to die. Here's death. You're going to go to one of two places. Do you see that on your map there? You're either going to go to paradise. Um, if you are a faithful, obedient Mormon who, who has done those minimum four, faith in Jesus, repentance, baptism in the right way, receive the Holy Spirit by the right way. If you do those four things, you get to go to paradise. Okay. If you don't, if you didn't, you go to spirit prison. Sometimes they will refer to it as hell, but it's member language barrier, same vocabulary, different dictionary. It's not hell like we think of it. Now, the, the good part, you have to give this to the Mormons. They are a missionary people, right? Very Well, if you're a Mormon, that doesn't stop after death. You, you, you keep acting in a, in a missionary a format or way. Faithful Mormon missionaries will go down to spirit prison so they can come and go. Okay? Those of us who, who are in spirit prison, you'll, you'll have Mormon missionary come to you, present the restored gospel, the, the gospel according to Mormonism, and you have the option to respond. Okay? So what four things, faith, repentance, baptism, laying on of hands. Those four things it takes to get here, right? What, which of those four can you do in spirit prison? Can a spirit have faith in Jesus? Yeah. Can a spirit repent? Yeah. Can a spirit get baptized? What's well, kind of you know you keep pushing down and nothing happens, right? You can't you can't baptize a spirit. That's problematic. So you're stuck there. Um, can you lay on lay hands on a spirit? No, that's kind of problematic too, right? This is where the temple is one way so key important. If you toured the temple, they, they, they talked about baptism for the dead, right? They, said, they would say for our ancestors, baptism for the Baptism for the dead, or it's called proxy baptism, means that if someone has a temple recommend, if I'm a Mormon who has a temple recommend, I'm living a f- faithful, obedient life, obeying the laws of the gospel, the word of wisdom, and all these sorts of things, meet with my uh, bishop and the stake president, and I get interviewed, and I get my card. Okay, then I go in there and I can do some ceremonies, but the majority of what goes on in that beautiful building is works for the dead. So I might, for instance, go in and say, I've got a list. Maybe I do some genealogy stuff and I got a list of 50 names of my family or other people. And I somebody get baptized for them. Then I go, if you saw the the font, the baptism font is beautiful font. It's always the lowest point in the temple. It's on the back of 12 golden oxen. If you remember your Old Testament Psalms, temple had a had a basin thing, looked kind of similar. And they go into the water and someone says, all right, I baptize you in the name of so-and-so. Like, you know, my, you know, my grandpa, Jack Cunningham, I would say, you know, I'm being baptized in the name of Jack Cunningham. He'd say, all right, take me. All right, I baptize you. And then I would get out and wash out to go to the area. And they'd put hands on me and say, I, uh, you know, laying out of hands, receive the spirit, you know, in the name of your dead relative, Jack Cunningham. I just did those things for him. That means... If and when a Mormon missionary comes and visits Jack Cunningham, he can go, oh, I have faith, I repent. And he can say, well, baptism and laying on of hands has been done for you. And it's applied. Oh, wonderful. So they can go up and remain in, in paradise. That's why that's so critical, why that's so important. Now, they also do other acts for the dead, and we'll see why that is. But those are the things that at least get into spirit get into paradise okay now for whatever reason i'm not sure why the majority you know there's three billion people in the world there's 15.6 thousand what wait hold on three billion people 15.6 million mormons so it's still a small number of people who are who who are going to make it for whatever reason i don't know why if you were stuck in a prison and you saw people coming and going and they told you you could get out you would think you would do it but the vast majority of people don't 
And so, and there are other, I'm trying to simplify this. There's like millennial reign and weird stuff happening. I'm trying to make this as simple as possible, okay? Some other stuff happens, but judgment, okay? There's one day where, where you stand before the throne of Elohim and Joseph Smith and Jesus, and the three of them kind of decide this, um, where you're going to go for eternity, okay? Now, here, here's a perfect example of scaling the language barrier, okay? Get this. If you say to a Mormon, hey, I heard, you know, uh, you know, I've heard you guys kind of believe in like works righteousness that you're saved by what you do. And they go, no, not at all. And go, yeah, no, 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 I heard I listened to a class or, you know, whatever. They, a Mormon say, no, 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 I believe that I am saved by the death of Jesus alone and I don't do anything to add to it. And you're like, really? Man, I, I'm confused. Well, here's the language barrier. When they say saved, they mean get resurrected. Jesus' death, if it's applied to you, gets you a body at the resurrection. That's saved. Okay? If you want to know what we mean, you have to reword it. Okay. Uh, what does it take to reach full exaltation? Oh, you can do this, you can do that. You see, scaling the language barrier. So, at this point, you get to judgment day, and you, where you go will be determined, or you've got four options, really. Not options like you choose. Um, but, okay, remember back here, remember our spirit brothers and sisters who rebelled against God? And they're going to go, this, the line kind of goes off the page, you don't see it. They go like, like way over here. There you go. So they're going to go to the second death. This is our concept of hell. And there are two groups of beings in hell. Satan and his demons, our spirit brothers and sisters. And the sons of perdition. Uh, these these would be Mormons who have turned their back on the church. Okay, so if if, if you're a Mormon who has experienced it, gone through other stuff, but then rejected it, you, you that's the only group of us besides the demons who who end up in hell. Now the only benefit is because you have a body and they don't they get you get to rule over them in hell, but it's still pretty crummy. Okay, it's not like a not much of a consolation. Um, but, uh, so that's one option, but you talk to a Mormon and as long as you haven't been a Mormon yet, they're like, you know, don't worry, you're not going to go there. Okay. It's not going to be that bad where there, there are three other options. The, the second one, it's, it's called the telestial kingdom, the telestial kingdom. Um, this is reserved for the wicked, uh, Hitler, Mao, Genghis Khan, you know, the, the worst, worst people you could imagine in life end up here. But it's still a great existence. Joseph Smith said that if you could, if you could just see right now the celestial kingdom, you'd commit suicide just to get there. It's so wonderful. It's so, it's so good. But your eternal progression has been blocked. It's stopped. You're, you're stuck there. Okay? It's good. Better than here. But it's stopped. You can't progress anymore. The, the next level of heaven, it's the first level, telestial. Second level, terrestrial. Okay, the terrestrial, uh, you, don't, you don't need to get all these down, but basically think about it as people who are good, moral, honorable people. Mormons who never had the temple recommend, never did temple work, they will end up there. Okay, you know, I've, I've had Mormons say, hey, you know, you know, don't worry. You know, you'll end up in the terrestrial kingdom. You know, it's okay. Great existence. Very good. But again, my eternal progression has been ended. It's been cut off. I can't evolve anymore. The third level, this is, this is the desired option, is, is called the celestial kingdom. This would be those who have gained complete obedience to the celestial law. Uh, these people have reached godhood and angel status. Um, now, okay, how do you get there? You've been completely obedient. Um, here's the thing. The, now, they do, if you've met many Mormons who have been married in their, their, their ward chapel, the little church areas, that's fine. You're, you're married, but you're only married for time, meaning this side of eternity. If you get married in a temple, it's called a sealing. You're, you're sealed 
to that person. If you went through the temple, you, you, you heard about that. You saw the ceiling rooms they have and everything. And what they say is you're married for time and eternity. So you're, and this is really needed. This is important. Okay, it's not like a, I mean, it's optional, but you, you want this. You want to be sealed for time and for eternity. If you're a single Mormon, you've done it all, you become an angel, kind of a servant in this world. But if you're sealed to your spouse, okay, this is the best part of all, that basically, to, to use a little coinage or a phrase by the, the fifth prophet president of the LDS church, as man is... God once was as God is man may become this is the goal and the hope and the point of it all the law of eternal progression says that you have the ability to progress to Godhood forever so you can grow in knowledge and power and strength and all these things continually. It, your progression never is stopped. That's what's bad about these ones over here. As good as these two might be, your progression is stopped. Because in these two worlds, your ability to procreate is taken away from you. Okay? In this world, you know how we talk about eternal life? They say eternal lives. Meaning, you get to you, I'll speak to you men. You, if you choose to call up your wife at the resurrection, it's your choice. Sorry, ladies. Um, Then you get called up and then you get, and this is maybe the, okay, this is like our our current system, right? You and I, the map, we're right here, right? Elohim's here. Let's let's suppose you, you know, progress through this whole thing here. You get your own system. Because see, Elohim, and this is kind of the shocking part, Elohim, God, he once lived on a planet. And he had a God whom he worshipped and was faithful to the eternal laws of the gospel. And he uh, went through the process of the, or the eternal law of progression. He made it up here and got his own system. And he did it. And if you are a faithful Mormon, if you have faith and you repent and you're baptized by an ironic, some holy ironic priesthood, and if you receive the Holy Spirit laying on of hands by someone with the Melchizedek priesthood, and if you go through the temple ceremony and you receive the washing and anointing, and you receive your temple garments and your ordinances, and you are sealed for time and eternity with your spouse, you have the ability to make it all the way up and become a god. Just like Elohim was. This is the story of Mormonism. This is, and it's important to get your mind around it. Now, you don't need to become an expert in Mormonism. But if you get the basic story, the question that I started with tonight, is Mormonism Christian? I'm going to let you decide that. If you are familiar with historical Christianity, you realize this looks quite, quite different. Um, and let me let me make a comment, and then I'm gonna um, I'm gonna I'm gonna end with this here. Um, I would suggest if I'd said this at the beginning, you'd probably think I was overstating it. But give me a hearing and think about this. Um, Mormonism is the most polytheistic religion in the, I've ever come across. Okay? Hinduism claims to have about 300,000 gods. It's a lot. How many does Mormonism have? Well, Elohim had a god, and he had a god, and he had a god. And it goes back, many would argue, eternally. Many, many some, I, I know actually Mormon apologists who say there are an infinite number of gods. Okay. Now they, you know, they're polytheistic. They they prefer the term plurality of gods. But it is the most polytheistic religion in the world. And what I would suggest is this: Islam is closer to Christianity than Mormonism is. Islam believes in a God who is eternal, who is completely self-sufficient, does not depend upon anything else, is all-powerful, is a spirit being. And who is holy. 
Elohim was once a man who was sinful himself, who has a body of flesh and bone and uh, hasn't eternally existed. He depends upon the eternal laws of the gospel by being obedient to them. Which one of those is closer to the Christian concept of monotheism? Yeah. Now, culturally, it looks a lot like us, right? Vocabulary, it looks a lot like Christianity. It's a very, we're not playing on different fields. We're playing different sports. These are, these are radically, radically different things. You can be throwing an oblong ball and call it a softball. You know, it's not. Let me, let me make this last comment here real quickly. And we'll, and we'll end with this. Um, let me make a, a point of application for us, okay? Uh, some of you guys have heard of the, some of the revivals that, that went through America. You know, you've got the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, Charles Finney revival, Layman's Prayer revival. Wonderful, wonderful things in many ways saved our nation in many respects. Um, there's a certain area in upstate or in a part of New York and it's been coined the, the burned-over district. The reason it's coined that is because these revivals would come in and leave just as quickly as fire would go through a town. So revival come, people would, oh, you know, they'd commit their lives to Jesus. And then the people who were there teaching, and remember Paul said, for three years I stayed with you. They would stay three days. And then they would move on. And people made an initial commitment to Christ. And then, oh, then here comes another revival. And it would come through. Listen to these words. J.P. Moreland, he, he's a professor at Talbot Seminary, he's, he's quoting this idea of uh, George Marsden, who's a historian. Let me read this for you real quickly. He's speaking of these revivals, and he says, much good came from these movements. People committed their lives to Christ. To be, the, the country was shaped and changed in many respects. But their overall effect was to overemphasize immediate personal conversion. Make a decision. You ready to make a decision? Okay, let's do it. Instead of a studied period of reflection and conviction, meaning the emphasis was an emotional, simple, popular preaching in place of intellectually careful, doctrinally precise sermons, messages, calls to follow Jesus, talks about who is Jesus, um, and personal feelings and relationship to Christ, which again, that's wonderful, right? But instead of or uh, lacking a deep grasp on the nature of Christian teaching and ideas. And he says, sadly, uh, as historian George Marsden notes, anti-intellectualism was a feature of American revivalism. So what? So what is two of America's homegrown, I don't want to use the word cult because it's, it can be um, inciting, uh, aberrant Christian religions. Two of America's homegrown aberrant Christian religions grew out of this location and out of this time. Right? Uh, Jehovah, the Mormonism in 1830 and the Jehovah's Witnesses in 1888. What was going on in the culture? There was a culture which was about this thin. They knew the name Jesus. They knew the vocabulary of Jesus. They knew the vocabulary of following him. But what does it really mean? Who is it? What does it mean to follow Jesus as the incarnate word of God? The, the, you know, this concept is God as, as multi-personal. What does it mean to walk after him in an apprentice relationship? That just didn't happen. Most of the time. Not always. Much of the time. And as a result, you have a church which is intellectually flabby. And they're infants who are tossed about by the winds and waves of doctrines. Oh yeah, Paul talked about that. Paul was worried about that. That's why he said, I begged you, the three years I've stayed with you, long period of time, <laughs> I begged you to be careful. I begged you to be on guard. Why? Because cunning and deceitful men will come in and they will pervert truth. And so I want you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so here's the application. Here's what I want to leave us with as we finish week one and then uh, go to week two and week three next week is this. Are you in a context where you are growing in your apprenticeship with Jesus? Are you bringing alongside other people in your lives that you are pouring into as apprentices of Jesus? 
Or are you just kind of going about in a kind of like a two-inch depth of following Jesus? Because that's really easy to do here in America. It's easy for me. Man, that's, that's really, it, it's easy. You coast. But when we do that, look what happens. So as apprentices of Jesus, this is, this is what I want us to move, to, move, take one step toward tonight. <laughs> is, is a commitment to say, I'm going to be a little bit more serious about my apprenticeship. And my discipleship with Jesus. I'm going to engage in community. I'm going to have this. I'm going to, I'm going to read scripture. I'm going to read. I'm going to, I'm going to have conversations about it. I'm going to do it in community. So that I'm the kind of person who is well grounded. Who is mature. And has unity with the church. The two things we started talking about. Unity and maturity. Right? You still with me? You doing okay? Okay. We're over time. We're like six minutes over time. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. And then uh, we'll run. You can grab some coffee, pick up your kids. I, I see kids like waiting at the back, like vultures, hoping there's food in here or something. So let's do this. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your call on our lives. God, we recognize the enormous distinction between who we are and who you are eternally. But God, we we marvel at the fact that you call us sons and daughters, that you have adopted us into the family of God. And you call us princes and princesses. And you do speak of us in new creation, ruling. You have made us viceroys, your agents, image bearers, to have dominion, to rule, to bring beauty out of your creation. And that's what we long to do, God. We are honored by your call, empower us by your spirit. And would you please help us and show us ways that we can understand and love our Mormon friends and neighbors, God. We are grateful they are here in this community because we don't have to go to them. They come to us and we're so excited. We love you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys so much. Thanks for being here. If you would like prayer, uh, our prayer team will be up front. Grab some coffee. See you guys next Wednesday.